Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Sawcox. In this week's edition of Insight, you'll find us in a partying mood. Not a weekend of Benid's kind of party, more like the Norse god of mischief. Yes, we're keeping it low key. According to the Vero SME index, brokers are the life of the party at the moment. And like the seminal 90s party hit, things are going to get better. Those party animals at the Hain Royal Commission are taking the idea of being fashionably late a little too far, with some of their recommendations finally going through. And there's still party pooper updates flooding your inboxes with more stories about floods. How very meta of us. Hello, everyone. This week, I'm joined by party animal compadre's senior journalist, Benice Han, deputy editor, Wendy Pugh, editor, John Deeks, and chairman, Terry McMullen. Good morning, John. Morning. Are you in a partying mood? Not really. There's not much to celebrate right now, I don't think. <laughs> Hello, Terry. Hello there, Andrew. You've got a bit of partying coming up in a few weeks at Steadfast, haven't you? We have. And also, I'm I'm partying because the AFL season starts this week. So, you know, my life is complete. All oh, right. We could go into that in detail, but that's a different kind of podcast. <laughs> Hello, Benice. Hi, Andrew. Just realised uh, for the first time that your uh, your name is not too dissimilar to Bernie's, one of my favourite movies. I'm just checking you're alive and not an elaborate hoax that will end in predictably chaotic and hilarious consequences. I don't know about that. You've not seen Weekend at Bernie's? No. I've heard of it, but I didn't really catch my attention. Sorry. All right. Okay. I, I highly recommend it, but don't see Weekend at Bernie's too. Okay. Hello, Wendy. Good morning, Andrew. Well, Wendy, it's clear you're a resident party animal. No, I'm in between parties at the moment. <laughs> well, you've been partying the most with the Vero SME Insurance Index. What does this edition have to say? This is an annual survey that uh, Vero does. So um, this year it involved 1,500 SMEs and about 250 larger companies. Uh, and it just asked them about the way they buy insurance and whether it's through the direct market or the brokerage channel or um, how their general experiences have been. This year's findings were actually pretty positive for brokers. So it found 78% of broker users were, were satisfied with their experience. And some 62% of direct buyers said they would consider using a broker in the future which compares to 41% in, in 2019 before the pandemic. And the index tracks the, that purchasing channel mix. So there's this trend for people to use, you know, the direct market for some things and brokers for others. And this year, 61% were mixed users up from 54% the previous year. But the good news for brokers was that increase came entirely from a reduction in the direct channel. And while those who are really heavy users of brokers held held um, steady, the other thing that came out of that survey was that also um, uh, economic concerns are a, a top worry for for businesses at the moment. Well, is it possible the direct market for SMEs isn't all it's cracked up to be, Terry? Oh, that's a nasty question for the the lead in, Andrew. I'd really like to drill down a lot further into the Bureau SME Index to discover the type of policies that this 61% of SMEs who are mixing, what are they buying? Is, is it the small specific risks they're going direct with? Or are they deciding that they've scored maybe by undercutting a broker's quote? I guess the answer is to, is to really have a have a good long look at it and I haven't really had a chance to do that yet. I do wonder if the SME market is ever going to be entirely stable when it comes to insurance buying patterns, but a 7% chance in uh change, sorry, in in one year is worthy of note. But equally important is why 
Uh, have all the recent catastrophes and a challenging economy been been a factor in SME buying decisions, for example? So in answer to your question, Andrew, we're living in extraordinary and uncertain times and the direct SME market, I think, is a vital and competitive market for the major insurers. A beautiful politician's answer that I don't sure sure answered the question. Maybe I'll have more luck with Benice. Now, uh, Benice, some of the remaining recommendations from the Hain Royal Commission are going through. What does the new legislation cover? Uh, yes, yeah, so they, it covers the compensation scheme of last resort and the financial accountability regime, which is usually called uh, FAR for short. So uh, the bills were presented in the House of Representatives by Stephen Jones, uh, the Financial Services Minister and Assistant Treasurer. So basically with FAR, it extends the existing responsibility and accountability framework that have so far applied to banking, to the insurance and superannuation sectors. So um, Mr. Jones says, says the FAR bill will regulate directors and the most senior and influential executives of accountable entities, so insurance, insurance companies. So one of the key takeaways of FAR is that there will be a requirement for at least 40% of executive variable remuneration, such as bonuses and incentive payments, to be deferred for at least four years. So um, variable remuneration will be reduced where uh, accountability obligations have been breached. As for the compensation scheme, um, Mr. Jones said uh, the scheme is designed to act as a last resort mechanism for uh, consumers. So basically consumers who have had an ethical ruling in their favor, but have yet to receive the compensation that they are owed by the financial firm, uh, they may be able to receive compensation of up to 150,000 under the uh, bill's provisions. So, and uh, the Commonwealth will fund the uh, establishment of the scheme. Uh, initially, the aim is for the scheme to be operational from December this year. That is provided if the bill is passed uh, by both houses uh, by March. Yep. Well, apart from the compensation scheme of last resort sounding like a hotly tipped Oscar-nominated movie, John, why do we need it? Well, Andrew, let's imagine you were treated unfairly by a financial services firm and you went to Africa with a complaint, but the, the firm had become insolvent, for example. Africa at the moment is powerless to, to do anything. You could contact the liquidator of the, the, the firm that's gone bust and try to get on the list as an unsecured creditor, but that obviously won't necessarily lead to anything. Financial firms also have professional indemnity insurance, which might also help. But at the moment, it's 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 pretty tricky. And AFCA is certainly in favour of of this compensation scheme of last resort, as was Hain, as we know. So the way it would work is that you you AFCA would then be able to deal with these complaints and, as Bernice says, uh, award compensation up to one hundred fifty thousand. Now. The problem, of course, is how that's paid for, because usually AFCA is paid for by the industry. The the determinations that go against financial services firms, obviously, they then have to, to pay. And if the firm is insolvent, who pays? Well, that's where it gets tricky. And I, I guess the ultimate answer is going to be the industry. Sounds like the perfect role for uh, Meryl Streep. Well, also, John, our analysis this week looks at some of the 2,000 complaints that AFCA had received in relation to last year's record-breaking flood catastrophe. Yes, that's right. I think we said before that AFCA had uh, more than 2,000 complaints in relation to the flood event uh, last year, which happened in February and March. 
And as we know, as you say, there was the most expensive insured event on record. Now, we did point out that I think that was less than 1% of of the number of claims that there've been. But still, it's a lot of complaints. And we decided to take a look at some of them in detail because, you know, each complaint is different. But um, yeah, we picked out four in the analysis. You can go online and read all about them, but they all have something in common. And that is a dispute about flood cover. So, you know, everyone these days understands that flood is dealt with separately to storm and rainwater runoff and, and, and the like, but there are still plenty of disputes about it. Some consumers say, oh, well, you didn't tell me I was now opted out of flood. They usually lose on that one because the insurer is able to prove that, uh, you know, through the renewal documents or whatever, it was clear that they weren't covered for flood. The trickier ones come when a property is inundated by both flood water and storm water, and then you've got the hydrologists in to decide, you know, which caused the damage. And I believe in right in saying I'm right in saying that if stormwater mixes with flood water, then it's treated as flood water. Don't ask me why. And then there are disputes about insurers reacting differently to different properties that are in the same street. And there's one that we detail in the analysis there where somebody says, Well, hey, you didn't you didn't offer me flood cover at an affordable rate, but you did to someone else in the street. AFCA sided with the insurer on that one, saying that well, they don't have to give any information about other people. They've shown that you were a high flood risk, therefore we're charged a high premium, and that is all they have to show. So, yeah, it's an interesting read, and I'm sure these determinations will keep on coming because uh, there are going to be potentially thousands of them. Well, if any listener can educate John as to why when you mix storm water with flood water, it's called flood water, we'd all be fascinated to know. It's not nice, Terry, but I guess... If you're not covered for flood, then you're not covered for flood. Yeah, really. That sounds easy enough to understand, doesn't it? Funny how so many people don't. I I think we should look at it this way. The insurance industry is using data on floods that simply wasn't available 10 or 12 years ago. And they are now far more accurate in measuring flood risks. So... When you think about it, if we'd had that sort of data around 30 years ago that's available today, we'd probably have been a major catalyst in preventing hundreds of thousands of houses being built on flood-prone land. So, you know, really, it's just that technology has moved on. We understand more. So really, once we understand the risks, people should understand their own risks as well. Sounds nice in theory. Well, a couple of editions ago, Wendy, we had an e-scooter rider on the front page of the magazine. There's more to this story, isn't there? Some research funded by RACQ has found workers' compensation claims for e-scooter crashes have more than tripled in three years. So there were almost 16 claims made on average uh, every month last year. Most claims were made by males and more than a third of the claims were from people in the 25 to 34 age bracket and about a quarter from uh, those aged 35 to 44. And um, Tuesdays were the most common day for crashes and there were more in the morning uh, than in the evening, which uh, RACQ says might indicate people are rushing to get to work. All right. Are they a hipster menace on the streets of Melbourne or Brisbane, Terry, or an excellent example of sustainable public transport? Well, they're both, Andrew. They're, they're actually both. Look, speaking as a, a daily dog walker, I have to say that e- e-scooters are a menace, being driven quite often by children on footpaths and in parks everywhere. And how the hell do you sue a seven-year-old? I think a 
privately owned scooters are actually meant to be banned, and I think it's all the states, but they're just an addition to all the fast and lethal objects that are already zooming around, like e-scooters, electric skateboards, and even grannies with mobility scooters and a need for speed. There don't seem to be any state laws to control what are quite lethal and incredibly silent vehicles speeding along our footpaths. So, Andrew, if there were clearly understood laws separating e-scooters from pedestrians, shoving them in bike lanes with all the cyclists seems like a nice kind of justice to me. And if you could have a person with a lantern and whistle walking at all times in front of these otherwise silent vehicles, I would agree with your suggestion that they're a feasible example of public transport. And if anyone can tell Terry how he can sue a seven-year-old, I'm sure we'd all be really interested in that too. Well, finally, Bernice, our life insurance section contains details of an advisory firm trialing a nine-day fortnight. Yeah, so InvestBlue has uh, embarked on this nine-day pilot for full-time financial advisors and its other employees where they will basically get enjoy an extra 26 days off a year. So how it works is they get a weekday off every two weeks. They've just started the program, but uh, InvestBlue told us, though it's early days yet, um, the feedback from their staff has been very positive and that there's been no uh, drop-off in productivity. Though the employee uh, well-being scheme will cost the company about $1.9 million annually, um, they're looking beyond that $1.9 million uh, price tag. The chief operating officer, Lexi Glover, says business growth should never come at the cost of employee well-being. Terry, we reported on a general insurance broker is doing something similar last year, I think. Do you predict more of this kind of thing as staff well-being is prioritised and the war of talent continues? Yeah, I think so, Andrew, although I don't see a nine-day fortnight being a priority for the federal government in the immediate future, so I don't think we're going to see a formal change. Albo has his hands full right now. But I know lots of people in insurance who already work nine-day fortnights, and I gather from a friend in recruiting that it's it's become a regular negotiating point in negotiating your, your terms and conditions for a new job. The baby boomers like me are at last moving on, and our children have learned from us, and they've decided not to emulate our all-consuming passion for work. So good on them. And that's why I work a nine-day quarter. Well... Thank you for that. That brings us to the end of this week's Insight Podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, John Deeks, Benice Han, Wendy Pugh and Terry McMullen. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google, on all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.